it is now already almost 40 years since Ajahn Chah stopped speaking, since he fell very sick and couldn't teach in the normal way by verbal teachings anymore. And it's truly amazing that his legacy is still so strong. I'm not sure how many of you have been at Nong Pa Pong at this event. It's uh, very beautiful to see uh, in June, it's usually not thousands, but it's uh, hundreds of monks coming together and then uh, circumambulating uh, his stupa and paying respects to their teacher. You know, the whole forest, the green forest, is now really lit up with the brown orange robes of the large Sangha. And uh, particularly in January, for the death anniversary, you know, there's usually thousands of members of the lay community the lining the sides of the, uh, the big thoroughfares built of concrete by the monks, uh, the monks walking there, and later the lay community joining in, circumambulating, putting all the beautiful flowers. And then that after 50 years since he fell sick, about 40 years since he passed away. And that shows us the power of a life skillfully lived, the power of punya. Someone today came to make merit for Sada Dasanayaka. Someone lost her father just two days ago. And it's always very painful for us when we lose close loved ones. But one thing we can contemplate, whatever goodness the loved one has created in this life, whatever punya they have generated, that is still right here and can be enjoyed by everyone. Even the monastery project we have here right now, the renovation of the Dhamma Hall. Monasteries tend to outlast the lifespan of human beings. And it's a great uh, consolation if we contemplate you know, the good work we put in into Dhammagiri, even after we have passed away, may be enjoyed by many others. So good karma has got two effects in terms of the long-lastingness. The one is, when we pass away, wherever we are reborn, the good karma, the punya, will be right with us. Whatever good karma Sadat has made, that cannot be destroyed by death. Death can only destroy the body, but not the mind and not no, the karma which is in the mind, not, not in the body. So we always have that consolation, whether it's others passing away, whether it is one day we ourselves passing away, our good karma will be right with us wherever we go, wherever we are reborn. And secondly, even for others, if we live our life skillfully in a wholesome way, if we are of benefit to other beings, then even after our passing, 
all of that can still be enjoyed and will continue to benefit. And if it is on the very high level of someone like Ajahn Chah, that will be enjoyed by thousands and even millions. So life is short. That is what all the wise are saying, not just the Buddha. When death is certain, it will come. So that can't be avoided. All of us will have to face the uh, reality of death one day. The difference is, when death comes, how much punya have we done, how much goodness have we created, or how much badness, hopefully not, have we avoided doing bad things, and uh, have we contributed in this world for the welfare and benefit of others. And if we have a store of punya in our heart that will go with us to the next life, and if we have done things which are of benefit for other beings which are still abound in this world when we leave, then this is a consolation about the separation which occurs at death. Usually it takes very well developed parami, spiritual perfections, to be able to attain full release, Nibbana. Have you all heard that term, parami? There's an expression for the wholesome mental qualities in our mind, like uh, faith and wisdom, energy, patience, endurance, now, all the spiritual qualities we are developing, we can call parami, and that is something which goes over lifetimes. Each time when you come and you offer food to the monks, uh, each time you come here, you make the effort coming out early on a cold day, preparing the food early, getting some nice flowers for the shrine. This is all dana parami. This is near the spiritual perfection of generosity. It is a good karma we are accumulating like that. But it is also the habit which is established in our character. And someone who does that regularly will have a natural tendency of giving. And if we practice a lot of dana, then we develop dana parami. And it means in our next life, wherever we are reborn, we will be naturally generous. The quality of stinginess is very weak, and the quality of generosity is very strong in our character. And then it's even easier to practice more dana parami, and then the parami will reinforce itself. But to have the parami in particular in terms of virtue, the precepts in terms of samadhi, concentration, the calmness and focus of mind, and the parami in terms of wisdom, that one can have the insight and deepen the insight sufficiently that all defilements are destroyed and the person is completely released and attains nibbana. Now this needs very high parami. 
this is why in the this world is not crowded with arahants. But what is so inspiring that uh, in our tradition uh, there is quite a number of them. Uh, there and the general agreement amongst knowledgeable monks and the faith and the lay community is that they actually have realized uh, the state of uh, full release and nibbana. And that is already so rare for someone to be able to do that. But then at the same time to also have the ability and the talent to teach that to others is two different things. And there are some persons who have great power me in terms of wisdom, insight, energy, virtue, and they can practice very well, but they do not necessarily have great charisma and great language skills, or maybe not even the education to be a good talker. It's a little bit like some person is excellent in mathematics in school, and maybe physics, but it's not necessarily that they're also the best in footy. And it's quite unusual that the top performer in mathematics is also a top performer in footy, in sports. And to get someone like Ajahn Shah, we don't have a photo here, usually we have on the shrine inside, and I wanted to point to Ajahn Shah's photo, which we have on the shrine inside, but yeah, in uh, renovation mode and sitting outside on the veranda, but you all have seen that photo, uh, you know Ajahn Shah. And to have someone who has the ability to practice themselves and you know, realize the state of release and freedom, and then to be able to teach it to others, that they can understand it, that they can relate to it, that they feel inspired by it. This is extremely rare because two qualities which are not necessarily connected, they have to be in the same person. And uh, even if we look at the outstanding meditation masters who are good teachers, you know, already a very refined small group, but now there were quite a few disciples of uh, Ajahn Man and who became very famous and who became outstanding teachers in their own right, like Lumpur Tate, Lumpur Kao, Lumpur Van was very famous, uh, Lumpur Lee, Damadavo, and a few others. But the unusual thing is that outside of Thailand, in Western countries, to the best of my knowledge, Ajahn Shah has more disciples than all the other great disciples of Ajahn Man together. So the whole dozen or two dozen outstanding disciples of Ajahn Man would have less disciples in Western countries than just Ajahn Shah has on his own. In fact, I think in terms of Theravada Buddhist monks in Western countries, it's difficult to gauge that, but Ajahn Shah may be almost half of the whole number. So if you consider that, and it's so unusual, 
that someone has got the ability to practice themselves to the highest extent and the wisdom, and secondly, the ability to teach and to be charismatic, and then thirdly, to do that teaching and to have that charisma and to be able to inspire even outside their own cultural background. We were sitting here in uh, Australia, Queensland, and we have got a, a German-born monk, as my accent makes clear, who got ordained in Sri Lanka. And in front of me I've got an Aussie, a Thai, mother Thai, Vietnamese, Sri Lankan, Chinese. Now this is the incredible power of the power me of Lumpur Cha. He could relate almost to, to anyone. It didn't matter whether it was illiterate subsistence farmers, because Ajahn Chana came from a very simple background in the Isan, northeast Thailand, uh, one of the least developed areas in Thailand, where many people had barely a few years of primary schooling in this generation. And then they just lived by subsistence farming. They had a plot of land. And what they would grow there, that is their survival. And at the same time, he could relate later to uh, Bangkok High Society, whether it is a member of the royal families or whether it is uh, ministers and generals or rich businessmen or very educated people. It's very unusual that someone can relate to both. And then he could relate to all these Westerners who are completely different from their whole cultural background, from their you know, already physically <laughs> tall and clumsy, usually, for Thai standards. And uh, some of them, however, very highly educated, the dropouts from college people with you know, degrees and top marks on their degrees. And now they go into the undeveloped Isan and there's an Ajahn who comes from this subsistence farming background and who can converse with the local farmers about the issues of their water buffaloes and the latest problems with the rice and paddy fields. And can also talk to a more like a hippie kind of Westerner who walks in after dropping out of high school and traveling all over the world. And both find him inspiring. And that is although he can't talk English, he never learned really speaking English, just a few words. In fact, now the villagers later asked Ajahn Chana, how, how can you teach these Fawangs? How can you teach these foreigners? You can't speak their language. How are you doing that? Natan Shah would ask them back and he would say, hmm, can you speak buffalo? They say, no, we can't speak buffalo. So how do you teach your buffalo? If the buffalo goes too far to the left, you whack him on the left and he goes to the right. And if the buffalo goes too far right, you whack him on the right side and he will go to the left. This is how he compared his teaching of the Westerners, which was highly hilarious to these uh, Thai villagers, because monks are highly respected, in particular the Western monks. They usually have very high esteem, and to compare them to 
buffaloes. It's <laughs> like a you know, symbol of stupidity in, in, in that culture. It was quite hilarious for the villagers. But this is how he did it. But of course it's a little bit more than that. And it's the way he set up his monastery. That's actually a third factor. Sometimes you have someone who has a power me, they can realize the Dhamma themselves. So much wisdom, samadhi, virtue, and they can do it. And then additionally, maybe they're very inspiring and they can teach, a very good talker. And maybe even they can do that outside their own cultural background. Any class, any social background, any nationality, that they can be laid. But then there's still one other quality, and that is like a manager. It's often not talked about, but it's basically also a management position to be an abbot of a major monastery. And in Ajahn Chah's case, already in his lifetime, many branch monasteries were established. And when he passed away, there must have been at least dozens. And by now there's hundreds and more than 20 in Western countries and some in other Asian countries. It's almost like a multinational corporation with branches and sub-companies in different continents. And that requires the management skills. And sometimes even someone who's a good meditator and who is a good teacher and inspiring speaker is not necessarily capable of organizing a monastery and founding branch monastery and doing that in a different country. Uh, again, Ajahn Chah had all of that in just one person. This is something which I always find um, Truly, Acharya Abhuta, as it says in Pali, and it's wonderful, it is marvelous that someone can, can do that. And you can see you know, his smartness, not just deep wisdom in terms of insight in his own heart, but smartness, you know, street-wise, worldly-wise, he had that as well. How to build that up as a functioning organization for many people to live and train in. And for example, he had the very smart idea of having Lumpo Sumedho starting an independent monastery just for foreigners. Uh, that is what Banana Chart. The Nana Chart is basically the Pali, Nana Jati, the international, different birth, the different background. And that was quite unusual. And it was possible because the Lumpur Sumedho had trained with him and he had a few other monks, Westerners. And I think it was an incredibly wise decision because in the early days it was incredibly difficult. And again, someone like Ajahn Sumedho needed great power me to survive in the early years in Mungpapong. Because one deal Ajahn Chah made with him when Ajahn Sumedho wanted to train with him as a first Fawang, the first Westerner. And the deal was no special privileges. You have to do everything like the Thai monks. When the Thai monks get up at 3 o'clock, you've got to get up at 3 o'clock. 
And the Thai monks are sweeping an hour or doing 10 hours concrete pour, you have to do that as well. And the Thai monks are eating those days in a very simple Isan food with boiled frogs, sticky rice and chilies. And maybe to make it more crunchy, a few roasted cicadas or ants or something. But if they eat that, then you have to eat that as well. No special food for you either. And Lumpa Samedo agreed on that deal. And uh, that was a huge difference. And that is actually one of the differences to other disciples of Ajahn Man. And a very famous teacher was Lungta Mahabua, uh, another disciple of Ajahn Man, very close to Ajahn Man, and a very outstanding teacher when he passed away in a, the most famous monk by far in Thailand. But uh, one of the Western senior monks told me what struck him when he traveled around and visited different Kuba Ajans, different outstanding forest monasteries. He noticed the monks in Wat Prabhantad, Longta Mahabur's monastery, the Westerners, they were not really integrated. And when there was some uh, special chanting, they may not know the chants. Because in that monastery, the style was, they would say, you know, okay, they're foreigners, we can't expect them to know all the typical monks' duties. They can just do the meditation. Whereas Ajahn Shah would give an all-round training. And when you trained near there, you had to know the funeral chants and the morning chanting, the evening chanting, the pavita chanting, and you had to participate. When he went out and he had to go for an invitation and funeral and so on, then the Western monks had to be able to join and do it all. And I think that made a big difference. The ones what Banana Chant was established. Because Ajahn Sumedho had all these skills from that training, and then he could pass that on to all the monks ordaining in Nana Chant. And similarly, uh, subsequent abbots, Lumpa Sumedho was only a short time, and then later Lumpa Pasano was a long time. But by that stage, you know, these Western monks had gone through the training, a complete one, not just internal meditation, but all the requirements to interact as a monk with the needs of the lay community and all the skills in establishing a monastery, building it, running it, managing it. And uh, that culture was there and has been maintained now. So we have now a monastery for foreigners in Thailand. But this is still not the same like having a monastery in the Western countries itself. There's actually a very old tradition in Sri Lanka where they talk about the sasana taking root. And the definition for the sasana, meaning the whole Buddhist religion, not just theoretical teaching, but the whole infrastructure with stupas, monasteries, senior monks, nuns, lay community, and so on, everything that is a sasana. 
And what does it mean for the sasana to take root in a country? And the definition is that you have someone born in that country from parents of that country, ordaining in that country, and then studying and mastering the vinaya, the monastic discipline, in that country and then reciting it there. In Sri Lanka, that was only 250 years after the Buddha's passing, when it was introduced, so it was very quick. And when Arahant Mahinda came, just on Posanpuya, this is only a month before the rains retreat, and by the end of the rains retreat, there was already a Sinhalese monk who had also become an Arahant and who had mastered the monastic discipline and was reciting it. And already at the end of the first rains retreat, they had fulfilled that condition and the sasana had taken root in Sri Lanka, 250 years about after the Buddha's Bhavinibbana. Later on, it was much more difficult. In China, for example, it took centuries till the sasana was really established. And nowadays, 2,500 years away from the Buddha, is much harder work, as you can see, for everyone who is joining here. I like the way Devana Piyatissa introduced the, the Sasana in Sri Lanka. And Abhan Mahinda would just scatter some flowers and indicate this is a place where the Dhamma Hall is being built and then the king would just build it. <laughs> Nowadays it's a little bit tougher. We have to do the hard work a little bit more ourselves. We don't have a king who is just doing it all. But uh, in the West there have been attempts already to do that, and not just to have an Asian monk coming into a temple in a Western country and then teaching an immigrant Asian community that is like an ethnic temple. And that is, did exist already for quite some while, particularly in England. But there was the English Sangha Trust, and for decades, they had the aim of really establishing the Sangha in England, in Great Britain, and making it possible for local people in Britain, if they want to ordain, that they can do that and train there without having to go to an Asian country. And that has never worked out. They would have occasionally monks, or even two monks, often only one, Westerner, even British, and they would stay in one of these either ethnic places or more like a Buddhist center, and inevitably they would add up disrobing and getting married. That was actually the crucial qualification which Ajahn Shah discerned in Ajahn Sumedho when he sent him off to start the first monastery in Britain. Now, the president of the English Sangha Trust had come personally to invite Ajahn Shah to start a monastery and to send monks. And when he talked with Ajahn Shah, not knowing Thai, Ajahn Shah not knowing English, Ajahn Sumedho acted as a translator 
and uh, Ajahn Chah basically agreed or was open to the idea. And um, then he suggested that he would send Ajahn Sumedho. So the president of the English Sangha Tasna asked, uh, what would give me confidence that this monk you are sending, Ajahn Sumedho, has got what it takes for the job? And then Ajahn Sumedho had to translate that to Ajahn Shah. <laughs> and Ajahn Shah answered, I don't think that he would get married. <laughs> it was a crucial qualification. And the people who were overhearing that conversation were a little bit amused because they felt that there should be maybe more important qualifications than not getting married for that important job of establishing the Ajahn Shah tradition in Britain. But the president of the Sangha Trust was very happy completely inspired him because every single monk they had before, this is exactly what happened. They got married and they lost them. So he thought, okay, now this sounds good. And then they, they started. And the first difference to earlier attempts, Ajahn Chah would send Sangha. He would send four or five monks straight away. Because we have to acknowledge you know, for a bhikkhu, for a forest monk, the environment in a typical Western country is kind of hostile. Not hostile in the sense that you get attacked, but hostile in the sense you know, of materialist culture, of people not understanding you know, why you just sit alone and meditate, you know, of looking unusual. You know, there's a strong tendency, a strong covenant to pull you back into lay life. But if you have a whole group living together, then you have your own culture. It's like an island with its own different culture. And I notice that when I go out, I'm usually no longer aware that I'm wearing robes and I look so funny. Only occasionally I notice when I travel with my father, for example, that people always prefer talking with my father, although his English isn't actually that great. And then only after a while I remind myself, of course, it's because I'm looking so funny, whereas he looks more like normal. But if you are in the monastery in the morning in our Akasana, and I have the other monks, they all look like this. In the monasteries, it's quite normal to look like this. In the monastery, it's quite normal not to eat in the afternoon. In the monastery, it's quite normal to live a celibate life. In the monastery, it's quite normal to have sense restraint and not to have music playing and so on. If you have a small team of monks together, then that becomes your culture and you're supporting each other. And I think that was a crucial difference and the reason that you know, these monasteries actually did survive. Ajahn Shah didn't just send one monk, he sent a whole group, a whole Sangha. And the other thing was that they went out into the forest, and Ajahn Shah encouraged that. The English Sangha Trust had a nice little, I think it was terraced housing, had a little house, and it was in North London on a busy road, and a pub just next door on the other side of the road. 
but was very easy to reach. And the little programs they had, the people could easily, with a tube and the buses, get there. And then the president of the Sangata George Sharp, and he pushed through the decision that they would buy a rural property. That is what is now Chetos Monastery. And in order to buy that, they had to sell their nice little house in London. It was a big risk and was quite controversial. It was George Sharp as president who just pushed that through. And they bought this property in a quite a distance from London, no real public transport. And it was a dilapidated old manor house where half the rooms were rotten and the roof was not waterproof, was leaking and they had dry rot and wet rot and uh, old abandoned cars were littering the property. And this is what he bought you know, with the money from this nice little house in London. And then they had a period of very hard work of renovating that oil. And then later they got an adjacent property with a beautiful forest donated to them. And then they actually had a forest monastery. And I think that was another crucial difference. Because the Buddhist lay community, you know, they usually like it convenient, close by. But this is not what works for forest monks. And if you are next to the tube station, and next to the bus station, and next to the pubs and so on, it may be convenient for the lay community, but it's a very difficult environment for the monks. You get pulled back into the world. You don't have that distance, you don't have that peace. And I think that was another crucial factor. And Ajahn Chan, although he was getting close to losing his health at that time, he still visited England, and he was in Chetwest and encouraged that and liked it, and gave them the moral mental support that they moved ahead. And this requires a great, um, so to speak, a worldly wisdom. And even someone with deep Dhamma insight may not be the smartest person in terms of now where do you establish monastery and how and in which framework. But Ajahn Chah could do that. And by now, now the result is that we have more than 20 monasteries in different continents, Western countries, and we have Western preceptors. Preceptor means the monk who is officially authorized to ordain new monks. And we have ordinations now regularly happening. Also still in Nanachat in Thailand, but in Amaravati, Chethurst, Abhayagiri, here in Australia, in Buddha Bodhivana, Ajahn Kalyano will be coming, uh, will be here on the 11th of July, the abbot of Buddha Bodhivana, and he is an official Upacharya, a preceptor. He has ordained quite a few monks. And that is now almost unique. I don't really know any larger 
tradition in Theravada Buddhism in the West, where they have a major group of monasteries. There may be single ones. Ajahn Tarnisaro is a disciple of Lumpur Fuen, and also in the sense of Lumpur Li, but that is only one place. I think Ajahn Dick, a very senior American disciple of Lungta Mahabua, I think he has a monastery in the US, and there's only one again. Ajahn Shah completely unique, having a whole group of monasteries, and we are still cooperating, we are still meeting. And if you don't have the coronavirus, even many Western monks are attending the meeting yearly in Wat Nongpapong, there's still a sense of community. I think that is a crucial factor that made this community so strong. So maybe to sum it up, it is very rare to have great power me, great talents in many different areas. Just like in school, the one is usually good in math, the other one is a top guy in sports, the other one is good in music. And it's very rare that the same guy or the same girl is a top performer in sports, math and music. And Adan Shana was that kind of person. He had that tremendous wisdom, samadhi, virtue, insight that he could do his own practice and realize the Dhamma. Second, he had the ability to teach and explain that to others and inspire them and not just people from his own cultural and social background, but basically to anyone from anywhere in the world, from any social background. And on top of that, he still had this organizational management ability of establishing a community, monasteries with branches in different countries even. Uh, that is not absolutely exceptional. And he had now, these very smart ideas, now, which now we are reaping the full benefit in the long term of having a monastery in Thailand, but specially for the foreigners. Because it's just very tough. Not everyone can do it like Lumpur Samedo, with a language barrier, cultural barrier. But if you are in Thailand in Nanachat, it's much easier for a foreigner. And then also going out and establishing monasteries in Britain and then other countries. And doing that, not just a single monk as a teacher, but a community, a sangha together, four monks, five monks and more, so that they create their own little culture which can reinforce their own culture in an environment which is very worldly and materialist. I think that was also an incredible, important approach. And then uh, establishing forest monasteries. Not just a Buddhist center in, in, in London or in the middle of the town, but uh, going out where it's so difficult uh, for most people to reach. But where it's so important for the monks not uh, to have that forest environment. And for sure, now, there will be many other great qualities of Lumpur Chan. I can't even mention all in one talk. But these are the main ones I wanted to share with you today. Thanks for your patience.
And let us all practice diligently, because that is what Lung Po Chan would appreciate most, if he preserve his legacy in terms of continuing that unique Patipada, that unique style of training that he has endowed us with. I hope we can all do that together.